Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Nice to have you here. Let's pray and get right into the Word today. Father God, thank you for this morning. We do pray for your guidance and direction as we look into your word. And there's much, much to be gleaned from the things that we're about to see. So thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Okay, let's get into Isaiah chapter 30 this morning. Judah warned against Egyptian alliance. Verse 1, woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord who execute a plan, but not mine, and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me, to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation, for their princes are at Zion, and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. The oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev. Through the land of distress and anguish, from where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent, they carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps to a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt, whose help is in vain and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Now go write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. Get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected his word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved, in quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing, and you said, No, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee, and we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift." One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee 
at the threat of five until you are five, until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. God is gracious and just. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Verse 21, your eyes will hear the word behind you. This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. Then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground, and it will be rich and plenteous on the day your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also the oxen and donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise of his afflicted. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place, burning in his anger and dense in his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation, and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent, which reaches to the neck. To shake the nations back and forth in a sieve, and to put in the jaws of the people the bridle which he leads to ruin. You will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival, and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute, to go to the mountain of the Lord and to the rock of Israel, and the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard, and the descending of his arms to be seen in fierce anger. And in the flame of the consuming fire, the cloud burst downpour in hailstones, for at the voice of the Lord of Assyria will be terrified when he strikes with a rod, and every blow of the rod with punishment which the Lord will lay on him will be with the music of tambourines and lyres. And in the battles brandishing weapons, he will fight them, for Topheth has been ready. Indeed, it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre of fire with plenty of wood, the breath of the Lord like the torrent of the brimstone sets it afire. Well, real quick, that's a pretty long chapter. Judah, again, is getting the prophecy concerning them from Isaiah of their inability to defend themselves uh, against Babylon by making an alliance with Egypt. And he's saying, what are you doing? I, why are you making an alliance with them and not with me? Why are you going to help them? And this is almost 100 years before this happens. This comes to, to fruition. 
and God is warning them through the prophets, and they're saying what he's, Isaiah is saying, but you're, you're saying the prophets, you're telling the prophets and the people don't prophesy anything from God. We don't want to hear that. We just want to party. We just want to have what our flesh, our cake, and eat it too. We want to be God's chosen people, but not be told by God what to do. We want all the benefits of being God's people, but we want all the benefits of the world. And he's saying, no, because of that, you're going to be taken away. And you're going to be in captivity. And there, that's you're going to finally get to the point where you're going to break those idols. You're going to melt all that gold. You're going to get rid of those idols. You're going to realize that none of that is worth it. As it is today, none of the idols of the world are worth it. God has been warning us for 2,000 years, lay down those idols. And we know today our idols are, are, are shall we say, the fleshly lifestyle. That's the idol. We, we idolize the things of the flesh, whether it be material, our boats, our cars, our cell phones, or even people, even a kind of lifestyle, whether it be into the rap world or the modeling world or the, you know, the high fashion and the going out to dinner and, and the whole party life genre of being involved with things that are exciting, things that are, for us, satisfying the appetites of the flesh. So he says, you're going to find out, and none of the, I mean, we can do a lot of things, right? We can go out to dinner, we can have high fashion, we can do all these things. But as servants of the Lord, what he's saying when you put those things above God, and those are the things you want to do, which always seem to bring in a lot of sin around you, you have to compromise your Christian walk. And we do those things, he's saying, you'll find out that it's not worth it. So this is what he's saying to Judah here. And they do find this out, this we've been also reading Second Kings and what's been going on with them. All right, now chapter 31. Help is not in Egypt, but in God. Verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of workers of iniquity. Now, the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. And all of them will come to an end together. For thus says the Lord to me, as the lion or the young lion growls over his prey, against which a band of shepherds is called out, and he will not be terrified at their voice, nor disturbed at their noise. So will the Lord of hosts come down to wage war on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. Return to him from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. And in that day, every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols, which your sinful hands have made for your sin. And the Assyrian will fall by the sword, not of man, and the sword um, not of man will devour him, and he will not escape the sword, and his young men will become forced laborers. His rock will pass away because of panic, and his princes will be terrified at the standard, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. So, again, because this is prophesied well in advance of Nebuchadnezzar coming, He's telling them, don't put your faith in Egypt. They're just men. 
don't be so fearful of, of Assyria. Don't be more fearful of Assyria than of me. I can protect you. And he did protect him when they first came to, to Rabshakeh, come to, to try and defeat Jerusalem. That's when God wiped out all those soldiers. And Nebuchadnezzar came on the scene. <laughs> they didn't realize that they should have been more fearful of Babylon than of Assyria. But God says, I can't take of you. It was a proof. And had they all repented completely like Hezekiah that day, and all fall on their faces and, and, and completely got rid of the idols, then maybe God may have relented and not gone into captivity. Hard to say, because he said, because of the sins of Manasseh and the sons of his sons, and all, they had already done so much rebellion and damage, they needed to, to learn their lesson. But be that as it may, God was calling them, even then, as we see in this chapter, he was calling them to repentance, calling them to, to come back, so that they might learn that they could depend on him, which is the lesson we need to learn every day. Romans chapter 2 now. The impartiality of God. Verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But... Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having a law, are a law to themselves. And in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ, the Jew is condemned by the law. But if you bear the name Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish and teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who harbor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, 
through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So there you have the Paulinian, the, the, the rabbinical Christian view of Judaism. This is exciting. This is the first well-read, educated rabbi in the Jewish world to get a full-orbed perspective of the law and how it relates to the Jew. Because what he said in chapter one was that it is given to man the knowledge that there is a God. By looking up in the stars, there is a natural God-given inner awareness that we are a creation of a superior, intelligent, all-powerful creator. And we're without excuse. And then after that, he lists the sins of men, the everything that the adulterer, the reviler, and those who don't respect their parents, and uh, all of these sins. And this is really the, the, the way that Jews viewed the Gentiles, that they were like that. They had all those sinful issues, but they themselves had the law, and they were a tribe of, you know, they were from Abraham. Father Abraham, and they viewed themselves as better. And they had circumcision, they had the sign of the covenant. So they were God's covenant people chosen. And so nothing could ever affect their salvation. They were chosen. And Paul is saying, wait a minute, no. You who are outwardly Jews and think you're better, do you do the same things? Are you revilers? Do you dishonor your parents? Do you rob? Do you cheat? Do you commit adultery? And he basically said, I know you do. You do all these things. You're the same as the Gentiles. There's no difference. The difference is what's in the heart. See, a, a Gentile who has the law of God and does all the outward works of the law, meaning he has a knowledge that there are universal truths. There's universal right and wrong, which are given to us by God. The person who then practices that, and says, I'm going to respect my neighbor, and I can steal stuff. I'm not going to kill. I'm going to honor them. I'm going to be kind to people, respect boundaries, I'm, and not commit adultery and kill all these things. Then that he is, he is essentially practicing the law. What is the heart of the law to, of this, of God given a system of justice and morality and, and knowledge that there's a God in the universe and honoring that? But you, he says, you Jews who know all this and, and you accept all this, have put it behind you and you are going out and sinning and he says who do you think god's going to honor who's who do you think is more considered 
uh, part of God's family, one who does the things that he says, or the ones who say they doesn't say they don't believe it, but they don't do any of it. And so he is now giving the theology of uh, the view of God on uh, the sinner and who he looks at for his, to extend his mercy and his grace. And so we have the end right here in the beginning of Romans that God shows no partiality and that we are all one in Christ, one body, neither Jew nor Gentile or Greek, as he says here. Pretty, pretty exciting. Paul, I, I was going to say, Paul writes like I do. <laughs> he seems to write with run-on sentences. That's my claim to fame. You know, you just kind of start and put a period down at the end of the page with a lot of commas. <laughs> he's he's tough sometimes. He goes on and on and on, but it's 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 because his mind is is so detailed. It's adding all of the little intricacies that we need to know about. So. I just wish I could have the content that he wrote. I can, the content is what I still would like to have, but I, I digress. Okay, now we're looking at Charles Spurgeon. But there, the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. Isaiah 33, 22. The Lord will be to us the greatest good without any of the drawbacks which seem necessarily to attend the best earthly things. If a city is favored with broad rivers, it is liable to be attacked by galleys of oars and other ships of war. But when the Lord represents the abundance of his bounty under this figure, he takes care expressly to shut out the fear which the metaphor might suggest blessed be his perfect love lord if thou send me wealth like broad rivers do not let the galley of oars come up in the shape of worldliness or pride if thou grant me abundant health and happy spirits do not let the gallant ship of carnal ease come sailing up the flowing flood if i have success in holy service Broad as the German Rhine, yet let me never find the galley of self, conceit of self, confidence floating on the waves of my usefulness. Should I be so supremely happy as to enjoy the light of thy countenance year after year, yet let me never despise thy feeble saints, nor allow the vain notion of my own perfection to sail up the broad river of my full assurance lord give me that blessing which maketh rich and neither addeth sorrow nor addeth sin maybe we could sum that up and say don't think more highly of yourself than you ought and think of others as more important than yourself it's a concept that um i think can only be truly practiced by the power of the holy spirit at least in my case uh, we need God's intervention because of our selfishness and sinfulness. And Charles Spurgeon sees that in himself, says, God, just don't let me fall into that. If if I'm so blessed or I'm so this, just don't allow me to be left to myself because <laughs> I can become detached and unthankful and ungrateful or unsympathetic of the people around me. And so he chooses to think of them and to think upon the Lord and not himself. That's a good thing to remember. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for blessing us.
with this time that we have together. And God, we do praise you. We praise you for this beautiful, beautiful place we have to worship you here in Vallarta or where we are from, certain parts of the United States and Canada. So beautiful with the mountains, rolling hills, green grass, manicured lawns and clean streets. <laughs> There's so many blessings we have. Thank you for reminding us and keeping us, God, before you on our, on our face. And, and when we see all the blessings around us in our life, God help us to maintain the humility and our hearts steadfast on you so we, we know that we can be praying and sensitive to those people around us that have, have hardly anything and are in such distress and need so much. And there's, again, Lord, I'm just thinking about the flooding that's been going on in the world, in the Middle East. Again, there have some astounding flooding going on in different places. I think it was in Libya that two dams had broke and just killed thousands of people, wiped out a city and put everybody in, in immediate, shall we say, poverty and, and left without anything and food, no homes, everything's under mud. And a guy we just can't imagine because of the inability of the warlords to run that country. We do pray for your gospel to come in there and, and help these people realize that they're not going to find their peace and their answers in Islam. They'll find it in Jesus Christ. So we pray for them that need so much help right now, as well as the places in China that have been flooded, the different storms that have been ravishing places, and of course the fires. So we, we want to be mindful of them, God, and not shutting them out and recognizing that there is all kinds of destruction. And that's nothing, I mean, that's not to diminish any of the wars or to forget, God, that people, the destruction through human effort that's been going on. So we issue a blessing upon the people that are trying to uh, help those that are ravished by war and help the children, help people to escape. We thank you for the many people that have been able to escape before the bombs have exploded and destroyed everything. So thank you for that. And thank you for the Christian ministries continuing to work in those areas that need help, they need finances, they need so much. So we ask you to put your hand upon them and blessing there. And then, God, we just raise up the people before you that are going through surgeries or about to go through surgeries. We just ask you to help them in their desires or in their, their need, Father, to have their surgeries come uh, very soon. So I pray for John Hagleton, who needs her surgery very soon, for Litchie's aunt, who needs a surgery very soon. We pray and thank you for anyone that has gone through the surgeries and heart surgeries that are now healing, that continue to heal them, Father, so they can come back to full strength. Or anyone's have to take medication for heart conditions, God, heal their bodies. Thank you. A great praise, God, from uh, Pastor Joe, who says his tests all came back really good. And he's looking like his cancer's in total remission, God. So we thank you for your healing touch on his life. Thank you, God. We are so, so joyful to hear the great news that Pastor Joe's doing great up in Bucerias. So we pray for our other friends that are in need of finances, Roberto and Lulu. Also, Dean and Kim looking to a new place to move. We pray that that, that new place you're looking at will work out for them. And then you take their finances, and that is he gets those interviews, that he gets uh, another callback so that he can 
get his work going again. So thank you, God, for all you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the healing touch that you have been giving us and the things you are doing in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, thanks, guys. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Thank you.